0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on February 27, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. If you've been listening to this podcast and our daily offering, 60-Second Science, you know that I was recently at one of the major science conferences of the year, the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, as were a couple of other SIAM staffers, Mark Fischetti and Robin Lloyd. Once we got settled back in our New York offices, Mark, Robin, and I sat down and talked about just a few of the conference sessions we'd gone to, after which we'll test your knowledge of some recent science in the news. First up, me, Mark, and Robin. So Mark, what were uh, some of the things, if anything, at the AAAS meeting that got you excited for the future? Well, I sat
1: in on a a number of the climate-related sessions. Um, One of them was a long session on algae and There was a growing uh, perception that algae fuel, biofuel derived from algae, um, really wasn't going to make a lot of sense um, because of the number of inputs that are needed, nutrients, carbon dioxide. Where are you going to get all the carbon dioxide to feed this algae so that it will produce biofuels? And interestingly, there does seem to be a growing solution Uh, or at least a sense of how to solve this, which is to really co-locate, that's the new term, co-locate algae plants next to sources of carbon dioxide, which would largely be coal-fired power plants, industries, places that are uh, spewing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Instead, pipe it down to the big algae farm and use that to grow algae, which then can create biofuel.
0: So this actually looks more promising?
1: Yeah, you know, up till now, the research into algae has just been primarily, can we get it to do what we want it to do? Can we get it to create the lipids that can then be turned into biofuels? And I think scientifically the answers are yes, we can. So now it's becoming more of an economic question. Can we get this process on a large scale to be done economically, which basically means can you get your inputs really cheaply? And that's where the looking for carbon dioxide comes in.
0: And where would all this
1: algae get grown yeah, you basically have farms. Um, you know, the basic designs are either you have open air ponds, or you have these really long bags, like baggies, but football field size baggies, full of algae that grow in sunlight, or you do it inside in
0: um, re- bioreactors, they would call them. Where do they get the uh, the input energy in the bioreactors?
1: It's kind of a passive process, and that's been one of the issues. It takes time for the algae to grow, but if uh, here's this co-location idea again. It, it all happens faster if the temperature is higher. So let's say you were next to a coal-fired plant, plant, you use the carbon dioxide as one of the in- inputs, and there's waste heat from the plant, so you bring that in to warm up the algae. Um, and one of the algae's byproducts is, um, actually biomass, so you could siphon that off and turn that into fertilizer to then create other crops. So this, this idea of working different industries together may be the key to some of what has been kind of standalone research before.
0: So look for an algae farm coming to a neighborhood near you. Sure. Well, Robin, what, what, what jumped out at you?
2: Following up on the climate change topic, I went to some of the policy-oriented sessions that dealt with how we've been covering climate change as journalists. And I also went to a session where a couple folks from Public Agenda were talking about how society is responding to public policy that's available and journalism that's now out there on climate change. Gene Johnson offered some amazing statistics of a uh, survey that Public Agenda did. They found that 4 in 10 Americans, this is a scientific survey they did of 1,001 adults in the United States, 4 in 10 Americans could not name a fossil fuel and that 6 in 10 could not name a renewable Fuel source. So there's a real disconnect going on with what we're trying to do, what the Obama administration is trying to do, with the efforts we're trying to make to advance responses to climate change. And what the public agenda folks recommended this included Dan Yankelovich and Gene Johnson, his colleague they recommended understanding that sometimes getting society to respond to big social changing concepts and problems can take decades. And they cited, they actually cited as analogies to what we're undergoing now as a society with climate change, women's rights and slavery as analogous issues that we're grappling with. And if you think back historically as to how long it took in the United States for us to really come to terms with both of these issues, while well, we're still cycling through them. One of the things that Yankilevich and Johnson also pointed out was that there's really a a cycle, an S-shaped curve over time that we go through as a society responding to social issues and it starts with consciousness raising and then the S-curve starts heading up toward the ceiling and we're in a period of working through a process and finally it levels out and we get to a resolution period and they're saying that with climate change we are just getting out of consciousness raising and we're just entering the working through period and they urged policymakers and communicators and politicians to be not simply more patient, but also instead of advocating uh to present pros and cons and to present solutions for society, for for people engaging in various debates and discussions to choose among, and to present the options and the pros and cons rather than advocating for any one of them, but just to present these pros and cons very clearly and simply so that there's a sense of engagement and and various options for people instead of a feeling that situations and positions are being cramped down their throats or that they don't even see a solution. The analogy that they gave in terms of climate change right now is if a patient were in a doctor's office right now and the doctor said to the patient, you have cancer and it's fatal, and then stopped talking.
0: It's interesting you talk about the the working through period. Uh, Deborah Blum's book, The Poisoner's Handbook, Discusses, among many other things, the fact that lead in gasoline was finally taken out of gasoline. I think it was in the early 1970s that lead was removed. And, you know, I was a little kid and I remember it seemed like the effort to get lead out of gasoline started a few years earlier and then was ultimately achieved in, in, you know, the early 70s. Turns out, according to Blum's book, the effort to get lead out of gasoline started in the 1920s. It took about 50 years to finally get the lead out, to literally get the <laughs> lead out. I mean, they knew way back then that it was causing a lot of problems, but the, uh, the societal impetus was, was too weak until, you know, Fifty years went by, and, and the problems really started to permeate through society. And, and then enough political will was finally achieved to make that possible.
2: Sure, and there's still lead and paint in a lot of our homes today, and the mitigation efforts around that are ongoing.
0: So we got algae and climate change and people's reactions to how to move through the climate change acclimatization period.
2: Yeah, I mean, one more thing that came up around climate change was a panel of uh, mostly journalists and other folks covering climate change. And one of the things that they urged that I found really interesting is that journalists have to find new and better ways to tell the climate change story and to be more effective at relating the science. Obviously, this hasn't been done in the most effective way so far. And what they really urged was local coverage, keep it local. Instead of going on to the big national and policy issues, what's going on in Congress, sure, those issues are going to be covered by some of the big media, the Washington-based media, but what people need to know in their communities in California, in Oregon, uh, in Bangladesh, in Vietnam, and what some of the journalists there were talking about was efforts to really say, okay, what are our local data? What are our local issues? What are our local options for responding to climate change instead of worrying about the global issue? And that presi- provided a lot of hope and opportunity for, for folks in those communities.
1: I would amplify that because um, if you think about how the whole environmental movement you know, used to be seen as a movement, it took a long time also to finally gain traction, but the way it gained traction was exactly that. It, it, it kind of stopped trying to fight the national issues and, and did go local. And there were local environmental movements, and that's where the whole super fun thing came from. There's a local problem that's really bad right here. Let's amplify that problem and then remind people, hey, look, there's, this problem repeats itself again and again and again in your community, in your community. And um, I think that's probably an interesting way to think about how to now transition. I th- it, d- it does seem the public's aware of these problems, but now we have to try to solve them. And rather than trying to solve the entire planet's problem in one step, if you can look at it locally, it, it gets people excited about solutions, which can then mount into larger things.
0: What else do we have? If you've never been to one of these conferences, at any one time, there's probably 20 different talks going on. So nobody can go to all of them, obviously. And it's it's just like a uh, a symphony of of science information, or more like a cacophony of science right. information getting right. thrown out there. So, uh, Mark, what else did you wind up well, going to? Well, I can give
1: you a, sh- a real sh- quick thing. Um, the, the Pew Trusts, you know, they have all kinds of studies that they do. Since Robin brought up surveys, they, every 10 years, every 10 years for now twice, they, they ask experts about, uh, the future of the internet. So this is the second time through. They did it in 2000 and they asked, um, and these are computer or internet savvy people, um, about a thousand of them. What, what would they envision the internet would be in 2010? And they quickly reviewed some of the results. Nobody had envisioned anything like Facebook, by the way, or that it would be so ubiquitous. So they asked this question again. And there were a couple of really interesting uh, results. So now what would the Internet be like in 2020? And two of the really kind of cool results were they, they asked if they thought, now that everybody is sort of on the net and on their phones uh, publishing information, so to speak, um, because of all the shorthand that goes on, what would the next 10 years of the internet do to the English language? Would it make, would it essentially make people more linguistic or less? And their assumption was that people were going to just maul the English language because of all the abbreviations and all that. But there was, the, the responses were essentially that it would improve the English language, largely because, yeah, right now everybody's doing this kind of really rapid abbreviated things although if you notice on texting now you don't see the dopey abbreviations much anymore people are doing the whole word thing and the opinions were kind of as this as people are more used to their language being in the public and their friends language being the public they're going to start to criticize each other's um, poor language to the point that that may raise the level of general language ability amongst the public which is kind of intriguing
0: is that the word they use, language oh, language, language ability, yes. two words? Yes, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I thought he said language ability, which <laughs> may be a new Could word be. soon. Well, one of the things, I mean, I do a lot of typing on the iPhone, and it finishes the boards for you. Right. So it kind of locks you into the correct usage. Right, right. And
1: uh, and just for, so real quickly, that was a, a related question was, w- would the internet make people smarter or stupider? And uh, I, the overwhelming response was for smarter and okay, but why? And and I think the, the the they they asked for written sort of opinions about why you're choosing this topic, or this choice. And there seemed to be a, a basic undercurrent that uh, as the internet, i are mean, really talking about the web, um, allows you to do more and more, that there may be a, a shift in human cognitive ability. And, and focus away from having to memorize information and more towards having to synthesize information now that you can have it so readily. And that that would actually, quote, raise people's intelligence over time because they're doing more synthesizing and analyzing and less just rote remembering.
0: And it should be pointed out that throughout history, I mean, for thousands of years, with the development of any new information storage, storage technology, like writing, Originally, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, people worried that it would make us dumber. Well, you know, the kids today don't have to remember our stories right. because they could just write them down and read them whenever they want. Right. And then when uh, when published books became available to the masses, some people worried about those making us dumb because the, the information would be so easily available that you didn't need to know it. You don't need to carry it in your brain all the time.
1: Yeah, we think at least we've gotten smarter, and so it's the same phenomenon. Now Now you don't need the books. It's all on the Internet, so nobody's going to read anything anymore, but obviously
0: we still do. (laughs) I know I read a lot more. I don't read as many books maybe, but I read a lot more information every day.
2: Well, uh, I'll take that as a segue to talk about youth culture. I went to this really fun session called Watching the Watchmen and Cheering the Heroes, the Science of Superheroes. And, uh, the, the superstar there was, uh, really Jim Kakalios, who's at the University of Minnesota, who pioneered this course, this freshman seminar in 2001 at the university called, uh, the Physics of Superheroes. And he, he did it as a way to wake up his students. They weren't paying attention in class. It's hard to engage everybody when you're lecturing on any science topic, especially physics. And he was able to uh, teach some basic principles of physics by getting people to engage with some of the science that is presented in comic books, especially in comic books dating back a while. And he actually did a little bit of analysis of the content of comic books and found that if you look at a comic book from the 50s or 60s, it'll actually have a little explainer box for some of the Concepts that are, you know, and and powers that are illustrated in the in a comic book, and he uh, actually had one student do a midterm paper on whether the Flash, if he was running at almost the speed of light, how fast would it take him to consume all of the oxygen in Earth's atmosphere? And it was it was great, a great paper, apparently. kakalio uh, said that the kid, you know, had to start with the fact of, you know, the question of how many molecules of oxygen are there in Earth's atmosphere. And, you know, just him telling the story, I, I now have remembered for the past several days, there are 10 to the 40th molecules of oxygen in Earth's atmosphere. How would I ever have remembered that than hearing this anecdote? So it was fun. The kid uh, found out that no uh, a flash would have to run at nearly the speed of light for several Several million years before he exhausted all of the oxygen in our atmosphere but you know there are ways to use popular culture and entertainment to to really engage students in some of these topics it was a fun session there was also a couple uh Uh, writers from the TV series Heroes there as well as a screenwriter from the movie The Watchmen there who are talking about their use of science uh, in their screenwriting. And the short answer is uh, science is inspiring to them, but they're not able for narrative reasons to stay really close to the science. But they do a good job of getting us started.
0: Kakalios also had an example where you could figure out based on, you know, originally Superman couldn't fly. He could only leap really high or really far. So the, the problem that he set his students to do was to figure out, based on the leaping ability that was described in the early comic books, so let's say he could leap a 30-story building, based on that, what would Krypton's gravity have had to have been in order for a Superman with the same muscularity as he, as he would have had to put that much force down and then leap? You know, what would the original gravity have been compared to Earth's gravity? So, you know, it's, it's fun stuff and you, you can, if you apply it correctly, you can actually learn some physics. Okay. So what else? Anything else anybody went to that was uh, of interest?
2: Yeah, I went to a briefing actually on stem cells, a status report, and there was actually a little frustration expressed among the researchers there. Funding is a real big problem in this field, even with the signing uh, the signing of the executive order uh, early on in the Obama administration. The issue here, the
0: executive order that enabled federal funding for some stem cell research again, ex- in addition to the extended
2: lines. more stem cell lines, yes. So, uh, the issue is that this, this research is, is basic, um, but some of the treatments are going to be one-time only treatments. And so there's not a lot of interest on the part of, uh, pharmaceutical industry to invest in this, and yet tons of money is needed to get things moving forward. Irving Weissman at the Institute for Stem Cell Biology and Regenerative Medicine was hopeful nonetheless, and he said that we're probably going to have uh, some of the early regenerative medicine treatments available within the next 10 years, but there's still uh, a lot of basic work that needs to be done. And They were also reiterating this issue that's been coming up lately in the news about the difference between induced pluripotent stem cells and embryonic stem cells, and there's been a lot of hope that we could solve some of the ethical issues of working with embryonic stem cells that some people have by using uh, induced pluripotent stem cells as a substitute, but it's looking more and more like there's really not going to be a one-to-one match there, that you can do some modeling with induced pluripotent stem cells, but that they really are not going to be... A perfect model that we're really going to have to find another solution or become more comfortable with working with embryonic stem cells.
0: Those induced pluripotent stem cells are stem cells from an adult that you kind of reprogram so that they were the equivalent or they're thought to be the equivalent of an embryonic stem cell, but it's not really 100%. And you still need to do the the basic research with the embryonic stem cells just to find out if your Reprogramming of the induced pluripotent ones actually does match up one to one. Right. I went to an interesting talk by a, a fellow named Donald Olson at Texas State University. And what this guy does is he'll take a painting by Van Gogh or Edward Munch that features an astronomical scene, like the famous Starry Night and Based on historical records, they know approximately where Van Gogh was when he was painting. They'll, they'll know what city he was in, what town he might have been in, and approximately when, you know, it might have been April in whatever year it was, or maybe mid-April, maybe the records are are that good. And then by using certain identifiable objects in the foreground, like a, a barn or a house that, you know, hopefully is still there. He'll then go to that place in France and we bring some students and they, they scout all around the town until they've identified the exact spot, pretty much, where Van Gogh was when he saw the scene that he saw. And then they will be able to tell you exactly what the objects in the sky in the painting are. Because you can't necessarily tell. The paintings are, you know, obviously they're not photorealism. So you don't know, is that is that the moon or is that a star? Is that a planet or is that a star? And based on the astronomical records and the historical records and the exact location that the painting had to have been painted from, and the assumption that the painters are very good recorders of reality in spite of the way they manifest that reality in the painting, he'll be able to tell you exactly what it is. He'll be able to tell you whether something is a moon rise or a moon set. They did some work also with some Ansel Adams photographs where the the records that Ansel Adams himself kept are not that great actually on when a particular shot was taken. So by studying the objects in the foreground in the Ansel Adams and those are mountains or um, uh, certain geological configurations other than mountains, you know the spires that they have in the parks that he was in, he could identify exactly where Adams was and what exactly what time. These, uh, photographs had to have been taken. And it's just, it's a great exercise for his students, for one thing, because they learn how to apply a lot of, um, astronomical information and in physics to a situation that's also really fun to try to work out. And not only that, the, he gets to go to Paris a lot. He gets to go to, uh, to other, other places in Europe to rather, uh, pleasant locations and bring students and they they work together as a team and they scout out these locations so it's just it's real fun detective work and the kids seem to really enjoy it too
1: so when so when they've done enough of these then and you're touring around in France and you've got your iPhone on and your little artist app comes up and it goes off when you happen to walk by the house where this painting was painted that's a (laughs) a great idea
0: but it's interesting There, there are apparently some there's apparently some resistance from some members of the art community to this kind of effort because they think it somehow takes away from the art itself if you start evaluating it in terms of the scientific reality behind it. I mean, I thought this was all settled a few hundred years ago with... um the idea that Newton had kind of destroyed the mystique of the rainbow by working out the optics. And you know, most scientists will say, no, no, it makes it even better to know what it is. And that's, you know, where I come down, probably everybody here and everybody listening, but there still is some, some resistance to the, to the even idea of doing this and publishing the results. It should like the painting should stand on its own without us using it as some kind of historical tracer document
2: these are not the people who are going to be going to a AAAS meeting I guess
0: the American Association for the Advancement of Science aka the AAAS records all the talks at the meeting and makes them all available for sale so if you're interested in any of the very few areas that you just heard discussed or to find out what else was on the table at the meeting and is out there to be heard, just go to www.tripleas, that's org, and look for the schedule of the 2010 meeting, and the talks can be downloaded as mp3s. Go to www.aven.com, that's for Audiovisual Education Network, and look for the 2010 AAAS meeting on its conference list. That's www.aven.com. Scientific American has no financial interest in the sale of these recordings. I'm just passing on the info. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, forget swabbing the deck. A new U.S. Navy ship is outfitted with Roombas, robotic vacuum cleaners. Story 2, a teenager's science fair project for testing whether an athlete has a concussion, will get presented at an upcoming meeting of the American Academy of Neurology. Story 3, chickens see in black and white only. And Story 4, despite previous publications claiming that athletes wearing red perform better than athletes in other colors, athletes wearing red do not, in fact, have a competitive advantage. And time is up. Story one is true. The new Navy ship, the USS Freedom, is outfitted with robotic Roombas and Scuba cleaning robots. Now, just organically link the pilot to the control center, and you basically have the ship from the TV series Farscape, except for the flying at faster-than-light speed in space part. Story two is true. Teenager Ian Richardson, not the British actor of the same name, thought up this simple concussion test. Attach a hockey puck to a stick, drop the puck, and measure how fast the athlete can catch the stick by how much of the stick goes past the athlete before he or she catches it. A small preliminary study found that concussed athletes had reaction times about 15 milliseconds slower than non-concussed athletes. That's too small a difference to catch with a stopwatch, but it's very visible via the stick test. Richardson's dad is on the faculty at the University of Michigan Medical School, which may have had something to do with the test being fast-tracked for inclusion at the upcoming April meeting of the American Academy of Neurology. And Story 4 is true. A 2005 paper in Nature claimed that Olympic athletes who wore red had a competitive advantage for some reason. But Charles Seif at the NYU Journalism School has published a paper refuting the red hypothesis. To find Charles's paper, which could be a factor in your own uniform design, just Google Charles Seif, S-E-I-F-E, and red uniforms. His research on this will be part of his upcoming book called Proofiness, The Dark Arts of Mathematical Deceptions. All of which means that story three about chickens seeing in black and white is totally bogus. Because a new study notes that chickens have five types of retinal cones as opposed to our three. We can see red, green, and blue, but chickens see extra colors up in the ultraviolet. For more, catch the February 26th episode of the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, which noted that the enhanced vision of the chicken may explain why it crosses the road, because it sees interesting stuff on the other side that you and I can't. that's it for this episode we'll be back soon with an interview with physicist sean carroll author of the new book from eternity to here a seriously fun look at time in the meantime get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com where you can find out how to enter our world changing ideas video contest And if you can follow us on Twitter, you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.